Ezekiel chapter 23. Now, I'm only going to read to you verses 1 through 4. Typically, as you know, I'll read the whole chapter that we're going to cover, and then we'll go back and begin to look at it. But tonight, we're going to go through this chapter piece by piece instead of me reading the whole chapter. There's a couple of reasons. This one, the way it'll be easier for us to dissect. As, as we go through this tonight, you're going to be glad I didn't read it all at once. You're going to see why in just a little bit. And also, they're less likely for us to miss some valuable truths because it's harder for us to go back and get every little thing. So we're going to take just a couple of verses or a section at a time tonight and just pull out the truths from those sections and then move on to the next. So we're only going to cover verses 1 through 4 to get started. Ezekiel 23, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ohola was the name of the elder and Oholiba the name of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ohola is Samaria and Oholiba is Jerusalem. Now this chapter describes Israel and Judah's spiritual infidelity towards God, the one who chose them. But it also chronicles their unfaithfulness toward God all the way back to Egypt and how though God judged Israel for being an adulteress, as you're going to see, uh, Judah should have learned from what happened to her sister, but didn't, and therefore would be in stricter judgment. So I'm just going to lay that all out for you. That's what we're going to be looking at in this whole chapter. Israel was judged by God for her unfaithfulness to him, and Judah, who watched the northern kingdom be judged and taken away by the Assyrians, should have learned from that, but didn't. And because Judah didn't learn from what her sister went through, Judah is going to be held in stricter judgment when the judgment comes on Judah or came on Judah. Go with me real quick. Put a bookmark here in, in uh, Ezekiel 23 and go with me to Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at verses 47 and 48. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, the scripture says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You've always heard, to whom much is given, much will be required. And for years, people thought that that was just talking about rich folks. You know, those who've got a lot of money, God's going to expect them to do more. Now, actually, the whole time you see in the scripture, to whom much is given, much is required, the context is in how much light they've received from God. And as you know, the scripture says very clearly that it's going to be easier in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum because the miracles that Jesus did in Capernaum. And Jesus himself said if the miracles that he had done in Capernaum were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so on the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they were judged harshly in this world, when they stand before God, they will be judged lighter than the people of Capernaum of the day during the day that Jesus walked on the earth. Why? Why will it be tougher on the judgment for Capernaum than Sodom and Gomorrah? They had, more, they had more revelation. Not only did they know some of the things Sodom and Gomorrah knew, Jesus himself walked in their midst and did miracles in their midst, and they still rejected. Now, in the same way, that's why, scripturally, Judah will be held, or has, has been judged more strictly than the northern kingdom Israel. Oh, by the way, what does that mean for our nation? 
We love to brag on how we're a nation that was founded on biblical principles and the word of God and how we were a nation that sent out missionaries all over the globe. And as we turn our back on him, the judgment will be stricter for us as well. So keep that in mind as we go a little further tonight. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 23. Also, we see the one mother gave birth to two daughters, Ohola and Oholiba. The one mother refers to them when the nation of Israel when they were a united kingdom under David and Solomon. And as you know, and I'm going to show you a little bit of the history of that tonight, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms. Actually, all of the 11 tribes went with the northern kingdom, and only the tribe of Judah, one tribe stayed in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem area. And Ohola, referring to Samaria, as we see in verse 4, Ohola is Samaria, and Oholiba is Jerusalem. Ohola in the Hebrew means her own tabernacle, and Oholiba in the Hebrew means my tabernacle is in her. All right, do you see the difference? Ohola, northern kingdom of Samaria, her tabernacle, okay, her own tabernacle. And I'm going to explain what that means in just a second. Oholiba means my tabernacle is in her. God's speaking about that. Now, if you don't know that, I'm going to give you a brief overview, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it. When the two kingdoms split after the kingship of Solomon, when his sons were fighting over the kingship, when the two kingdoms split, Jeroboam decides, well, if the people still keep going back to Jerusalem to worship every year, because you know that's where the temple was built, and that's where God wanted everybody to worship him, and he had made really clear that that was where it was to be, Jeroboam thinks to himself, well, if the people keep going back to Jerusalem every year to worship, they're gonna, their hearts are going to go toward the southern kingdom. So what he does is he makes a new place to worship up in Samaria. Well, let's read about it. Go to 1 Kings chapter 12. First Kings chapter 12, verses 16 through 33. It says, and when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. That there was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam, the tribe of, sorry, when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 cho chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relative, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. 
Then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar at all? When did we see this happen already? In the wilderness, during the Exodus. While Moses was up on the mountain, they said, we don't know what happened to this guy Moses. And they talked Aaron into making calves of gold. And they said, these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. By the way, how did God react to that? Pretty good? Or was he okay with it? I mean, he, he made them drink those calves. If you remember, they, they built it down and he made them drink it. And here now, Jeroboam not only builds a new place of worship up in the northern area instead of in Jerusalem where God had said the place it was to be, he also made golden calves instead of an altar to God. I'm sorry? Well, actually, you're going to see it's in the area of Samaria. So Dan, and there's two places. One was in Dan, as you're going to see. Another one's in Bethel. All right? So let's keep reading. All right? Verse 29, and he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to, before, to be before one. And he also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, and in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So we see that's when the kingdom not only split, but then the two places of worship began. Now, if you remember... This two places of worship issue carried on all through the history of Israel, not only through their judgment as we're looking at here in Ezekiel's time and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all that, but all the way to the time of Jesus. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus goes through what area? Samaria, that northern area, the area that the Jews wouldn't even go through, the southern kingdom area Jews wouldn't go through because what happened was during the time of the captivity in Babylon, the Jews that were taken captive started intermarrying with the Babylonians. And when they left Babylon to come back into the land, that area of Samaria is where the people who had married the Babylonians all lived, and they were half-breeds in the minds of the pure Jews. And so they wouldn't have anything to do with the Samaritans in the area of Samaria. And the Samaritan woman, as you know, in John 4 was a woman of Samaria. But look at verses, uh, John chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. The woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see, here she's still wrestling with that same issue. Ohola means what? Her own tabernacle. Oholiba, my tabernacle is in her. And so God said there was a mother, one mother who had two daughters. The elder named Ohola, which refers to Samaria, who had her own tabernacle. And the younger one was named Oholiba, which refers to Jerusalem, where my tabernacle is. All right? That's verses 1 through 4. Let's go to chapter 23, verses 5 through 10. Ohola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lover's the Assyrians, warriors clothed in purple, 
governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them. And she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt. For in her youth, men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness. They seized her sons and daughters. And as for her, they killed her with a sword. And she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. The northern kingdom turns to the Assyrians for protection. We're not going to take the time to look at totally all the history of that. But go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 17 as I kind of lay this out for you. They turned to the Assyrians for protection instead of God. And they also began to worship idols of the Assyrians, thus being spiritually unfaithful, if you will, to God. So God allowed the Assyrians to conquer them and to take them captive. And as you probably already remember, that happened in 722 B.C. Go to 2 Kings 17, though. 2 Kings 17, verses 1 through 23. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, the king of Egypt, and he offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea... The king of Assyria, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and he placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. And listen closely to this is the history in Second Kings. It can't get any more clear. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the peoples of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from the watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, and the, as the nations did whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but where they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. 
Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now, as we've just read in this short history for the northern kingdom, they worshipped the gods of the Assyrians and they worshipped all the Baals and they were offering their children as sacrifices to these foreign gods. And what does God ultimately do? He says, I've been telling you over and over and over, don't do this. This isn't good for you. This, I want you to worship me. If you follow me, it'll be for your good and not for harm. And he, they would not listen. And so what does he do? He says, you want to be like the Assyrians? I'll hand you over to the Assyrians. And you can go live in Assyria. You can be their captive. And they were judged by them. Now, let me just say, there's debate with some people, but it's very, very clear as you study history. Even our nation was started as a nation under God. Our nation was set apart for the worship of God, the people that came here and we started. It have, we have a history that's very, very clear that we were a God-fearing nation. But what's happened to us? We want to be like all the other nations. And folks, little by little, God has been offering opportunity for us to return and return and return. But ultimately, with God being who he is, what will he ultimately do? You want to do that? Go right ahead. And I believe a judgment has already begun. You say, Jim, how has the judgment already begun? Well, we're not going to take the time to turn there. But if you look at Romans chapter 1, the Bible is very, very clear in 18. And following the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness because people suppress the truth. Although what may be known about God is clear to them, his divine nature, his eternal qualities have been clearly seen through what has been made so that all men are without excuse. And that scripture goes on and says, even though he revealed himself to them, they worshiped other things. And then the passage goes on and says, therefore God gives them over to their shameful lusts. And he talks about homosexuality, men with men, women with women. And folks, as our nation, as the Supreme Court says that homosexual marriage is okay, as individual states are approving it, it's evidence that God has given us over to our shameful lust. What's next? What's next is he could very easily allow us to no longer be the individual nation that we have been for so long, the powerful nation that we have been so long, because that's who God is. You look all through the scriptures, you see it. The prodigal son comes to the father and he says, I'm not going to wait until you die to get my inheritance. Give me my inheritance now. Most of us as parents would say, no way. But the father in that story, who is God, says what? You want to go? I'm going to let you go. Here's your money. Go. He hands us over. Paul teaches us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a man in the church there in Corinth who was having sexual relations with a woman who was his father's wife. And the church was actually thinking it was okay. And what does Paul say? Hand this man over to Satan that his soul may be saved. You see, Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Remember, he's going to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone to just maul. 
And God is protecting us from him at all times. If you're a child of God, God, Satan can't do anything to you without God's permission. That's why Satan asked for permission to mess with the disciples. And he asked for permission to mess with Peter. And Jesus allowed, just like in the situation with Job, Satan says to God, the only reason Job's like that is because you won't let me touch him. You've got this protection around him. And God sets the parameters. But there comes a point where God, who's been protecting us from the evil one at all times, if we continually ignore his calls, he'll say, go ahead. You want your fill? Individually and corporately, there comes a time when God hands us over. Now, for a child of God, you're not going to lose your salvation in that process. But what's going to happen? You're going to get mauled. You're going to get devoured. There's going to come, hopefully, a point where you realize this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And then you hopefully come back in repentance to your father who's waiting for you to come back. The nation of Israel, for many years, he kept telling them, don't do this. But they did. And there came a point where he said, do you want the Assyrians to be your God? The gods of the Assyrians to be your gods? Go ahead. And there was no more a northern kingdom. They were taken away captive. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 23. Look at verses 11 through 27. Her sister, Oholiba, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister. In her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister, she lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waists and flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her in the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. After she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her lovers there, whose members were like those of donkeys and those issue was like that of horses. Thus thus you long for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. Therefore, O O Holiba, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up against you your lovers from whom you turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men and governors, commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses, and they shall come against you from the north with chariots, and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I'll commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments, and I'll direct my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears, and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire." They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring begun in the land of Egypt so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. After watching how God was displeased with Israel for turning to the Assyrians, Judah under King Ahaz, I'm going to show you this from the scripture, Judah under King Ahaz did the exact same thing. But not only that, he actually went even further. He had the altar in Damascus 
copied and brought into the temple of God. And I'm going to read that to you. It's, it's a real surprising thing that a lot of people don't know. But actually, Ahaz, when he was king of Judah, after seeing what was going on, he actually went to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, and he saw the altar that they had at their shrine and their temple to the false gods. And he was so impressed by it, he had it copied and brought to the temple in Jerusalem. And they pushed all the stuff that was in the temple to the side and put this altar that was in Damascus in the temple. You don't believe me? Let's go look at 2 Kings chapter 16 and read it for ourselves. 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of kings of Israel, in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. Look at that. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. Then they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Instead of turning to God and calling out to God when this stuff's going on, who does he call out to? The king of Assyria. And he says, I'm your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And he sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. Now, I stop there for the sake of time. You could keep reading in the rest of that chapter later on, and you'll see the specifics. You'll see in there, that's when they push all the stuff that was in the temple to the side, and they put this altar from the, to the foreign god in the temple. So God turns his back on Judah because of this. And the Babylonians come and attack her just as he allowed the Assyrians to demolish Israel. By the way, in our study of Ezekiel, you probably may not specifically remember, but how long did the attack of the Babylonians take? It, does anyone remember when it started? The first time the Babylonians came and took captives? It was in 605 B.C. Remember, that's when Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were taken captive. The next wave was in 597 B.C., which is when Ezekiel was taken captive with his wife and the 10,000 captives that were taken. And the final siege started in 588 and ultimately ended in 586 B.C. Three different waves from the Babylonians to attack them. Why did God have it take so many different years over a period of time? Mercy. He keeps giving mercy and opportunity, mercy and opportunity, but they wouldn't respond. Oh, interestingly enough, I found three places, and in, in, in go back to Ezekiel 23, I found three places where the scripture clearly says that the, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, 
realized that they didn't like the Babylonians as much as they thought. They became disgusted by them afterwards. Go look at verse uh, 17. Ezekiel 23, verse 17. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoring lust. After she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. Go to verse 22. Therefore, O Holiba, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stir up against you your lovers from whom, from whom you turned in disgust. Go to verse 28. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate. There came a point when the Jews realized, and this isn't what we thought, but it was too late. It was too late. Judgment had already begun. And that's where God had decided, I know you're sick of it, but now it's too late. Is there a point where it's too late to repent when it comes to God? Scripture is very clear. Talk about how uh, Esau sought with tears to get his birthright back after he had given it up. But it was too late, even though he sought it with tears. There comes a point when God has determined the judgment has come. Now, so hear me. I'm saying we don't know what the final judgment is going to be for the United States of America. I do know that scripturally I can't find us anywhere listed in the last days. So I don't know what that means. But let me tell you this much. Please pray for your president. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the country. Pray that we would as a nation turn back to him. But keep in mind, there comes a point where it's too late. And we don't know when that's going to be. So always be seeking God for his mercy. Now, we also saw on here that God said to them, they're going to cut off your nose and your ears. People think, well, what does that symbolize? It doesn't symbolize anything. You study the history of the Babylonians when they took captives. You know what they do to their captives? They cut off their noses and their ears. You can still breathe without all this fleshy stuff. You can still hear not as well, but with all this stuff gone, but you don't look good. And they literally disfigured the people that they, well, let me put it to you this way. Does Satan like you? But doesn't he offer you wonderful looking things? This apple actually wasn't, I don't believe it was an apple, but this piece of fruit that God said don't eat. Why? What was he really trying to do? Separate them from God. He was trying to separate them from God and have them killed spiritually and physically. To lose their standing. Satan hates you, folks. And let me just tell you, because we're still being tempted to this day, please be reminded that when the temptation looks so good, remember what's really behind it. Remember who's really behind it. I've learned over the years to have victory over sin and over Satan by remembering who it is that's offering me this temptation. I don't want him to win. I'm pretty competitive. I'll tell you that right now. If you don't know this about me, I'm pretty competitive. Even though I have uh, cancer and I'm on chemo and I'm and nowhere near physically at all what I used to be. If I'm going to compete with you, I still want to win, even though I'm on chemo. And then when we're done, I'm going to say, you can't beat a guy with chemo. <laughs> I don't want Satan to win. And so I want to offer you a reminder. It may feel like it's a good thing, but ultimately you're going to turn in disgust. Hopefully you turn in disgust before it's too late, before the judgment comes. Go back to Ezekiel 23 and look at verses 28 through 35. 
For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'll deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred, and take away all the fruit of your labor, and leave you naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring you have brought this upon, have brought this upon you, because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand, thus says the Lord God. You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and your whoring. God had decided that Judah was going to now drink the same cup that Israel had drunk. Does anybody know what the drinking the cup refers to? And if once you see what it is, and I show you a bunch of scriptures that all tie to it, it's going to be one of the funnest parts of the study. Hard to read its parts, but it moves into a really kind of a, an, an exciting thing. But let me just tell you, the drinking of the cup is referring to receiving the wrath of God. When it talks about drinking the cup, it talks about receiving the wrath of God. Go to Psalm 75 and look at verse 8. Did, this, did the northern tribe of Israel receive the wrath of God? Sure did. And now Judah was told, I'm going to have you drink the same cup your sister drank. Look at Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 75. Look at verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isn't that cool? Isn't that exciting? Actually, it gets scarier. Go to Isaiah 51. The wicked are going to drink from the cup of the Lord. That's the wrath of God. Go to Isaiah 51. Look at verses 17 through 23. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the, says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made, the, have made you like the back of the ground. You're back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. So here God says to the nation of Israel, I'm going to have you drink the cup of my wrath. But there will come a point where God will say, I'm going to take the cup of my wrath from you and you'll drink it no more. And he's going to give it to who? All the nations that have tormented her. As you know, there comes a point where the judgment and the wrath of God toward Israel will come to an end. And he's going to pour out his wrath on all the nations as he purifies Israel. And judges the nations, and that day's coming. 
Go to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29. Jeremiah 25, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as, as at this day. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, and all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Now, before I keep reading, keep in mind, Jeremiah was told, take this cup of the wine of the wrath of God and go give it to all the nations that I'm going to tell you to go give it to, to drink. He starts with Jerusalem and the Israelites, but ultimately, who is he to hand it to? All the nations of the earth, even those across the sea we read about, all the kingdoms on the earth are going to drink the wrath of God. And then ultimately, after that, who's going to drink it? The king of Babylon. Folks, as you remember from our Revelation study, I believe without question the Scripture teaches us, as we look at the whole of Scripture, that the headquarters for the Antichrist kingdom is going to be in Babylon in the last days. Zechariah 5.5 is so clear as it goes, and that woman in the basket, its wickedness and iniquity in all the land has been carried off, and it's going to be set in Babylon at the appointed time. The headquarters for the Antichrist kingdom is going to be in Babylon. That's why in Revelation 17 and 18, when we see at the end of the tribulation period, the final judgment on Babylon, which had been prophesied many times by Jeremiah and Isaiah, and it wasn't the judgment of the Medes and the Persians, but a judgment that says that there's going to be no one dwell there ever again for all of time. That judgment's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. And after God has made all the nations drink of his wrath, he's going to then pour out the rest of it on the king of Babylon, which is the Antichrist there in Babylon. Now keep reading. Then you shall say to them, verse 27, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit and fall and rise no more because of the sword that I'm sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, let me ask you a question. What does the, the cup represent that they are to drink? The wrath of God. Oh, go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Here's where it gets pretty exciting. Matthew 26, look at verses 36 through 47. Remember what the cup is. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, they went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus said, Father, if there's any way I don't have to drink this cup. What is the cup? The wrath of God because of sin. And folks, I don't want you to miss this, but Jesus took the wrath of God for us. He drank the cup. And if you will believe that what he did covers you, you'll by faith accept his sinless life, his death for your sin, his resurrection, his, your covering. Remember, the, the death angel was going to pass over wherever the blood was applied. You apply by faith the blood of Christ to the doorpost of your heart. Jesus has already drank the cup of God's wrath for you. He drank it for the whole world, but only those who will receive it in their place will be saved. And I love the fact that I am deserving of God's wrath just like you are. Go to Isaiah 53. It can't get any more clear as you go back now and look at Isaiah 53 with this in mind, how he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6, Who's believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one as one from men whom, hide their, one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And hit with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He drank the cup of wrath, God's wrath on our behalf. Aren't you grateful? I know I am. I thank the Lord for the fact that he drank the cup of God's wrath on my behalf. He prayed, Father, if there's any way that I cannot drink this cup, but if that's your will, I'll do it. And he did. Go for it. This, that prophecy in Isaiah was talking about Jesus being born and becoming the he that, that was beaten for our sins. Yeah, that was almost 500 years before Jesus was even born. Oh, yes. Oh, there were many, many prophecies that went along that way. I wish I could remember where that exact prof, uh, uh, scripture is because there was one that's come to my mind, but I, it is not jumping in. But it actually, the scripture says in the book of Psalms, the Lord is my cup. The Lord is my cup and my portion. Yes, he gave him the cup of life. 
because of him drinking the cup on their behalf, his blood is now life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we become the righteousness of God. Folks, the world is going to receive the wrath of God, but they don't have to because the wrath of God has already been poured out on man's sin through Jesus Christ, on Jesus Christ. He became sin. But if they reject it, if they reject the offer, the wrath of God is coming on all nations. Now, I want to read to you. Go back with me now to Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 36 through 49. Ezekiel. 16.5, Psalm 16, verse 5. Write that down in your notes and look at it later on. It says, Jesus, he is my cup and my portion. Doesn't that love it? <laughs> my cup, it's Jesus. Jesus, I love that one. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Ezekiel 23. Look at verses 36 through 49. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ohola and Oholiba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their, her, their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did in my house. They even sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent. And behold, they came. From, from, for them you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table spread before it, on which you had placed my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, with, and with men of common sort, drunkards, were brought from the wilderness, and they put bracelets on the hands of women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery, now they will continue to use her for a whore, even her. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus they went to, into Ahola and to Oholiba, lewd women. But righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteress and with the sentence of, sentence of women who shed blood, because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, bring up a vast host against them and make them an object of terror and a plunder. And the host shall stone them and cut them down with their swords. They shall kill their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses. Thus I will put an end to lewdness in the land that all women may take warning and not commit lewdness as if you have done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." Now, as God finishes his pronouncement of judgment in this chapter, there are a couple of semi-hidden truths in these verses that I'm going to bring out in the time we have left. The first one is this, and these things are just random, but they're pretty cool in these, these verses. The first one is this, your children were born for God. Your children were not born for you. Look again at verse 37, chapter 23, verse 37. It says, for they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery and they have offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. The scripture tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 11 verse 36 that everything is for him. To him and through him and for him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 clearly says that everything was made by God and for God. Actually Jesus, it says very clearly in Colossians 1.16, made everything and was made by him and for him. Go with me to Malachi chapter 2, though. Go to Malachi 2. And look at verses uh, 13 through 15. 
Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, in this, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering, your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God, sorry, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Here he says to the nation of Israel, part of the reason why God's not responding to your prayers and your offerings is because you've been unfaithful toward your wife of your youth. And he was wanting godly offspring and this whole marriage unfaithfulness stuff and divorce and all this mess that happens in that way. It's messing up what he's wanting. He's wanting godly offspring. All children are born for God. They've been created. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. Becky and I have been blessed with three children, but they're not ours. And that changes how you parent. If you remember that they were created by God for God, what is our responsibility? To train them and to teach them as they get up and as they lay down, as they walk along the way. We're to be pointing them to who? To God. And to the only way that he can be known, because there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And then to teach them how to walk with him and to listen to the Spirit and recognize the leadership of the Spirit. You want to be a godly parent? Don't train them in the way you think they should go. Point them to God through Jesus Christ. Teach them to walk in the Spirit, and God will do in their lives what he wants to do. Your children were not born for you. They were born for God. There's a second thing. Look at verse 43. God cares for Israel and Judah, even though they had been unfaithful. And they, as we see here in Ezekiel 23, 43, they're still special to him, even though he's judging them. They're still special to him. Listen to the tone of verse 43. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery, now they will, they will continue to use her for a whore, even her. Do you see it? He realizes that they're exhausted and worn out by their unfaithfulness, and now they're going to use her as a prostitute. Even her. Folks, don't miss this. God, as he pours out his wrath, his love is still there. He hurts. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He has no pleasure in the death of anyone. And the scripture says, well, have you ever parents ever said to your kids and you're disciplining them, this hurts me more than it hurts you? God, it hurts him to do what he has to do because he's holy. He must Pour out wrath on sin. And he gives much grace. He gives much opportunity. But even as he's judging Judah and Israel, it still hurts him. It still hurts him. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. You know that God disciplines us still too, right? As we're his children. He puts us through times of shaping and molding. He's not punishing us. As I read to you from this section, some of you, if you have an NIV in front of you, it's going to use the word punish. It's a bad word. Because if you think you're going to be punished for your sins after salvation, you don't think Jesus received the full punishment. Jesus was punished for all your sins. But his discipline feels like punishment sometimes, but it's not. It's not. Listen to Hebrews 12, verses 5 and following. And have you forgotten the exhortation? Some of your translations say encouragement. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. When God disciplines us, 
Remember, he puts us through times of pruning and shaping. Folks, do you understand that my cancer is not because I've sinned? There are many reasons, and I'm not even going to seem to guess that I can explain to you all the things that God's doing through, through giving me cancer or allowing me to give, have cancer as Satan tried to mess with me and to work on my faith. God has allowed it for a season. Does that mean he doesn't love me anymore? No, he disciplines and prunes those he loves. This is a time of shaping for me, and I can look you in the eye and tell you my relationship with the Lord is growing during this time. I'm experiencing a relationship deepening with him that I could not experience any other way. Having to go through some of the things that I will tell you have been the hardest things I've dealt with in my entire life have caused me to get to know him on a level that I never would have known any other way. He's doing it, and it's a hard thing, but he loves me. As he judged Israel and Judah, his love for them was still there. Keep reading. My son, don't be regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't lose sight for a second that in God's judgment that his love goes away. No, his love is still there. He loves everyone, even people in hell. But he also loves them enough to let them make their own choice, and he will not force as he's working his will in our lives as his children, he loves us even when he puts us through times of trial. Look at verse 45 of chapter 23 of Ezekiel. There's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. I want you to see this. Ezekiel 23, verse 45. But righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteress and with the sentence of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. Where are these righteous men going to come from? Who are these righteous men? They're going to judge Israel and Judah. That's not the church. Who are the righteous men? They're going to pass the judgment on Israel of adulteress. Any idea? You're getting there. The 144,000. The ones who are going to be set apart by God to preach at the beginning of the tribulation period. And the nation of Israel is going to begin to turn to the Lord. There's going to be righteous men from within Israel. Go to Romans chapter 11. I want you to see this. I don't want you to miss this. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. There's always a remnant. Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There's always been throughout history, a group of righteous Jews, that if at any point in history 
the prophecies were to begin to take place, they'd be righteous. The 144,000 Jewish men could be alive today. I don't believe they're going to be saved until the beginning of the tribulation period. Remember, the, the angels were told in Revelation chapter 7 that they weren't to harm any people or anything on the earth until the 144,000 were sealed. But there's going to be righteous men who pass judgment on Israel. I believe it's 144,000. But there's always a remnant. The last thing I want you to see is in verse 49. Ezekiel 23, verse 49. And they shall return your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. God is a jealous God, and he will make us know that he is God. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that one day every knee is going to bow, and one day every tongue is going to confess. That word confess means agree that Jesus is Lord. Things in heaven, things on the earth and under the earth, everyone, even people in hell will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. God says, ultimately, everybody will know that I'm God. There's going to come a day when everybody acknowledges it. I'm not going to take the time because I want to just bring this to a close. But if you'd write this down and go look at it later on in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. James 4, 4 through 10. How has God been reacting toward the nation of Israel and the people of Judah? What has he been calling them? Harlots, whores. Let's be honest. This is shocking. You probably would have never thought you'd hear the word whore that much in church. But this is just in one chapter. But remember, when you turn to anyone or anything other than him, he sees it as unfaithfulness. It's idolatry, it's adultery. And in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred toward God? Don't you realize that the spirit that he's caused to live within you is jealous when that happens? Now, thank God he's already received the full wrath of God on our behalf, and Jesus has already taken away the penalty of our sin but that doesn't mean that we don't still grieve the Spirit of God who's within us. And I just want you to hear whatever God says to you. Take some time on your own and say, Lord, show me if there's any love of the world in me that needs to be gone. This is where the preacher starts to feel like it's his job to tell everybody what you should and shouldn't be doing, what you should and shouldn't be watching, what you should and shouldn't be listening to, how you should or shouldn't be dressing. No, that's the Holy Spirit's job. That's not the preacher's job. But let me just say this to you. The scripture says that God sees a love of the world as enmity, hatred toward him, and unfaithfulness. Hopefully God doesn't think you've been. Well, as Paul put it, he said to the church in Corinth, I betrothed you as a pure virgin to one husband. I have good news for you, though. The book of Jude ends... In verse 23, by saying, he's able to present you blameless, without fault before him, and with great joy. I love you guys. No Bible study next week, because I'll have chemo. It'll be a chemo week, and then we'll have Bible study the two weeks after that. See you then. Thanks for coming.